Good morning, everybody. It's so good to be together again. Uh, in case you missed it, halfway through this week, we put out an announcement of kind of our gathering plan to get back together for in-person worship soon. And so we're going to be starting that on May 17th. That's a week from today, next Sunday, but it's still going to look quite a bit different than it normally would. We're going to start by having our services, at least in the month of May, outside on the front lawn. And so just kind of in your mind, picture a church summer picnic. So bring your blankets, bring your lawn chairs, and we're going to sit outside on the lawn. We're going to sing some songs together, uh, socially distanced apart. And you're going to hear some some teaching. We're going to pray together. You'll be able to see one another. But of course, we're still going to ask that you refrain from hugging and shaking hands and those sorts of things. We're going to have um, hand sanitizer stations around. The bathrooms will still be available along with some cleaner to wipe down the surfaces after you're done. The first row of the parking lot here will be reserved if you'd like to stay in your vehicle. You still want to come, but you're not quite ready to, to interact that uh, closely. You can stay in your vehicle and participate that way. And if you just aren't ready to come back to church yet at all, that's that's fine. And so our, our sermons like this are going to be available uh, in the same way for the next several weeks, even after we've started meeting in person. Um, also, in the case of bad weather, We'll revert back to our in-home worship schedule that we've been doing, and so you can watch the videos of the messages there. If you would prefer to wear masks or gloves and interact that way, feel free to do that. Uh, no one's going to be turned off by that. Uh, if that's how you feel comfortable participating, we'd encourage you to do that too. We want, probably most of all, just to communicate to one another and to the world Grace in this season and in this time of regathering and joining back together, people are going to do it at their own speeds and in their own time. And so we'd encourage that you just pour out grace on one another and show the love and unity of Christ in how we gather back together. Now, also, before we start in our message in Ecclesiastes this morning, I want to say a word about Mother's Day. Moms, we wish so so badly that we could be together in person and celebrate you and uh, thank you for who you are. Uh, for what you do and for the position that God has placed you in in our families. Uh, but instead, your individual families get to, to spoil you today and do that as best they're able to. I, I was thinking about mothers and thinking about my own mom. Thinking about my wife as the mother to our children. And I've realized this before, but it just hit me again that at every stage of your kids' lives, whether they're 1, 2, 17, 18, 38, 39, at every stage, moms are sacrificing for their kids. In some way, in some fashion, you're sacrificing for your kids. And so I want you to please know this morning that while your husbands and your kids, we may not always act as great, as grateful as we ought to, or even as grateful as we feel, we want you to know that you mean more to us than you could ever know. For those of you who struggle on Mother's Day, for whatever reason, uh, please know that the Lord holds you every tear that you cry and none of them are wasted. Our Father loves you indefinitely, completely, wholly, and He continues to hold you tight even when you can't hold all of your loved ones tight. 
So moms, we celebrate you. We love you. And most of all, we thank God for you today. And so we want to communicate that to you moms. We don't have chocolates to give you. Um, that wouldn't be a good idea at this point in time. But hopefully you get spoiled today by your family. So let's dig in to our message this morning in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 16. A little bit of review as you're grabbing your Bibles and finding that passage. Uh, Last week we talked about Solomon's poem in the first eight verses and how there's a season or a time in life for everything. Everything that happens to you, there is an appropriate season. Even when you can't feel it happening or when you don't know, when you can't see all of what God is doing, there's a season that you're in and he is... We believe a good and sovereign master weaver, as we talked about last week. And so he's carefully and intentionally threading each season of life that we experience in order to create a clearer picture of his son, Jesus Christ, in our lives. God makes everything beautiful in his time, in its time. And so the seasons of our lives, I would say especially the tough ones, especially the hard ones where we can't see the outcome right away. Those seasons especially are designed to point us to Christ and to deepen our faith. So let's read our text for this morning. It's Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 16 through chapter 4, verse 3. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice... Even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there's a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward, and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? So I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Starting in chapter 4. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been born, and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Let's pray together. Lord, we know as we have studied through this book, that everything is vanity without Christ. And the pursuit of justice even is is vanity if Jesus is not a part of it. And because uh, political powers rise and fall, laws are passed and laws are broken, and things change. And when progress is made in one realm, it seems in another that it slips so badly. Lord, remind us this morning... That there is hope in Christ, um, but that hope cannot be placed in the things of this world. It's only in Him. Teach us by Your Spirit from Your Word today. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. So, 
as we think about this, as we think about what Solomon has already been saying, he's been kind of systematically checking things off that we think, okay, this is going to bring real satisfaction. Oh, well, maybe this is going to bring complete fulfillment. And so we keep, he keeps checking these things off that we think will bring those things too. And he's realizing that he's just coming up empty with all of these things. So our experiences in this life are full of meaning. We talked about that at the end of last week. Solomon's going to repeat that again in verse 22 here. But if you're looking for something here on the earth to be the thing that brings you meaning, you're going to be disappointed. You're never going to find it. And in verse 13, or I'm sorry, in chapter 3, verse 16, through chapter 4, verse 3, Solomon turns to another thing on a checklist, it seems. He turns to another observation about life under the sun. What does life look like here on the earth? And he turns to justice. Maybe there can be some meaning found in justice. So if pleasure and work and, you know, partying and even pursuing wisdom, if those things don't bring meaning to my life, maybe devoting myself to a cause will work. Maybe there's going to be some meaning found there. And so at the end of chapter 3, verse 15, Solomon has actually already introduced this idea by commenting on the never-changing problem of social justice. You can look back at verse 13 along with me. He has said, that which is has already been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. So, basically, he's saying, people come, people go. Nations rise, nations fall. Everything that is, that is already has been, already happened before, and everything that's coming in the future, it's just going to be history repeating itself. From pretty much the beginning to today, and whatever there is beyond us in time, there's going to be oppression, and there's going to be justice. And the last part of verse 15 um, says, God seeks what has been driven away. He says that there's going to be oppression, and there's going to be injustice, regardless of what age and period of time we're in. And what he says in verse 15, see there at the end, God seeks what has been driven away, literally could be read, God seeks the persecuted. So not only does he have a heart for the oppressed, but God is going to render judgment in his time, which would be the right time. But it doesn't always usually happen in the time or the way that Solomon expected, or certainly that we expect. And so Solomon, the author here, he comments on this, saying that where he expected to find justice, what did he find? Wickedness. And where he expected to find righteousness, what did he find? Evil. He found wickedness even there too. In this fallen world that we live in, that's really almost governed by sin, by the evil one, where we expect and hope to find things being made right, we usually find wickedness and injustice instead, don't we? We can see that very clearly in the events that have been unfolding this week. We just see injustice perpetuated over and over again. And I, I read through comments on social media about these things, and people are just saying, when will it end? When will it stop? This is what Solomon is wondering too. 
politicians, they, they run on the platform of looking out for the little guy. But then when they're elected into office, they rarely, if ever, follow through with some of those promises. The judges that we appoint to office, they oftentimes seem more concerned with maintaining their position of authority than actually administering righteous rulings. The the sad reality of all of this is that the rights of the underprivileged and the rights of the vulnerable are oftentimes not protected by those in power at all. And Solomon jumps forward and addresses this at the beginning of chapter 4 in the first three verses. Let me just read those again. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors was power, and there was no one to comfort them. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like it applies today? See, in the kingdom of God, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. But in the kingdom of men, the strong survive, and most of the time they use the weak to make themselves more powerful. If you don't believe me, uh, or just for reference, go back to pretty much any and every civilization that has ever existed in the world. So oftentimes we put our hope into making lasting change, and then we end up using the power, uh, the people that were given The power, they use that to build themselves up. And they end up oppressing those who put them in power in the first place. Even people who are claiming to give out mercy and to be merciful, they use those opportunities for their own gain as well. Can I give you just a all-too-relevant example without getting too political in, in all of this? Think about the recent economic stimulus bill. Regardless of your feelings on whether there should have been or shouldn't have been, there was one. And the first drafts of these things were rejected by, you know, pretty much everyone. Why? Because people were trying to slip things into the bill that had nothing to do with actually helping the American people. So even under the premise of compassion and looking out for people and mercy, politicians found a way to use the opportunity for their own agendas. Imagine that. Solomon identifies with this in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. He talks about how painful it is for those who are oppressed. It seems that because of the power of their oppressors, there's no one able to comfort the people who are being oppressed. No one is able to wipe away their tears. Everything just seems hopeless. And at times it feels as though death seems like a better scenario than life. This is what Solomon says in in verse 2 of chapter 4. Not only that, but Solomon, I think, guesses here that it'd be even better to never be born at all. Because then you don't have to witness the atrocities that mankind commits against each other under the sun here on earth. What an ugly state of affairs to be in. So God gives opportunities for us, for people, to display and dispense justice instead of wickedness. Look back at Ecclesiastes 3, verse 18. It says that he tests us. This is how Solomon puts it. 
And I, I thought immediately of Matthew 25 with the parable of the talents. Uh, you, you've, you know this. The master goes away and gives three of his uh, servants different amounts of money. And when he comes back, two of them did well and one of them didn't do well. And the words of the master, I think there, apply here. At least they give us some understanding of what Solomon is talking about when he's talking about God is testing us about justice and mercy. The words of the master, he said, If you, you have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. So faithfulness while using the authority and the gifts that God has given is important here. So how do you use the gifts of the, and the power and the authority that you're given or that you're, those places that you're in? Is it to increase your own wealth? Is it to increase your own fame? Is it to just maintain the status quo? Or is it to use your influence for good? I think surely this is what the master was doing with those under him who he gave the money to. He was testing them. And the one who didn't use what the master gave him well, he was severely dealt with. So what do we find when we think about God's testing of us in all of this? Solomon explains it this way. He says that we find that we are just like the beasts in how we treat one another. Truth be told... This is not a new problem. Think about Israel's history for a moment. Throughout Israel's history, the kings, the judges, the priests, the rulers, the authorities, frequently they were corrupted by power. And they did things that did not only please the Lord, they did not please the Lord, but over and above that, they did things that were reprehensible in God's sight. It doesn't take a political science major to figure out that power still corrupts in our world today. We've all heard about the lawsuits where the thief sues the homeowner who he was trying to rob because he was injured while trying to rob him and he wins. Or the person, we've heard stories of people who were put in jail and were there for years, wrongly accused, and only were released when new evidence was made available. Stories, books, programs, movies, all of these things are made about people who are in power, who have a lot of wealth, who get away with terrible crimes simply because they had the high-powered lawyer or they could pay off the right people. System, the system seems really, really broken at times, doesn't it? And so it's easy to understand why Solomon, I think, would react the way that he does in chapter 3 and especially at the beginning of chapter 4. Life isn't fair. Isn't that what we tell our, our kids a lot of times? You know, they perceive that some kind of injustice has taken place. And what do they say? It's, it's not fair. That's not fair. And a lot of times as parents, we respond because we're a little older and hopefully a little bit wiser. And we say, well, I'm sorry, life isn't fair. Have you ever said that to your kids before? Kids, have you ever heard your parents say that to you? From an, from an early age on, though, there's something inside of us that just longs for and expects justice, though. I don't think this is any big surprise. It shouldn't come as a surprise to us because we were made in God's image and God is a just God. But Solomon says there is a season for everything, including justice. 
He says this in verse 17. You can look at with me. He says that God will judge the righteous and the wicked for there is a time for every matter and a time for every work. So what does this tell us? Well, it means that there is an appropriate time for administering justice, you know, but we don't always know when that time is. We don't always know when it's appropriate and God does. And so the timing of God's justice is often not the timing that we would choose, is it? I think David identified with this too. He felt this deeply in many of the Psalms. He he laments the fact that it seemed like his enemies were prospering while he was suffering, while he was on the run and he was in danger. Why am I, you know, we ask ourselves this question, well, why am I obviously the righteous person in this situation? Why am I having all kinds of hardships while the other person, the wicked person, you know, my enemy who is obviously wrong in this situation, why do they seem to not have any trouble at all? Why are they living high on the hog? Why are they not having any trouble? You know, where's the justice in that? How can God be fair and let things continue in this way? Aren't these the kinds of questions that we ask? I know I have at times. I think Solomon is certainly thinking that way here too. But there are things that that do come into play here that we usually can't see when we're the ones questioning the fairness of life or the fairness of what's happening. Let me put it this way. Imagine handling a conflict between two children. They could be your kids. They, if you're a teacher, they could just be two kids in a class. Or um, Just imagine handling a conflict between two kids. The problem is almost never all on 100% one kid. Okay, Some amount of the reason for the conflict rests on both parties involved. That's how it is in pretty much every conflict, uh, but especially with kids here. So as the parent, teacher, guardian, authority in these, this situation, you know that justice can't just come down as a hammer on one of the kids by themselves. You have to balance the actions and the behaviors of each one, and then you're responsible to dispense judgment accordingly. And sometimes the discipline is immediate, and sometimes the discipline is delayed. That comes at the discretion of the person in charge. But a lot of times, there's no matter what you do, no matter what you decide on, it's not good enough for the one who was offended. The person who's offended, they want swift judgment. They want immediate punishment. They want it to be harsh. They want to feel retribution in this. Who cares if they were partially to blame? The worse offender should bear all of the weight of punishment. Well, when judgment isn't handed out the way that the offended party thinks that it should be, they are thinking, wow, how could you get it so wrong? Punish them. Make this right as soon as you can. Have you ever seen this play out in real life with kids? I would imagine that you have. But you know what? This is you and me. Adults, this is us too. This is each one of our attitudes when it comes to justice. See, when we're the one who is offended, it's so easy to think that we know exactly how justice is supposed to be dispensed how it's supposed to come down. And most of the time when we're offended, we think it should be immediate and it should be severe. But put yourself on the other side for a moment. 
put yourself in the position of where you have wronged someone else. Are you still asking for immediate judgment? No, you're not. You're hoping for kindness. You're pleading for compassion and forgiveness. See, when someone breaks into your car or damages your property, you're calling for justice. This isn't right. It should be fixed immediately. But when you're the one who's caught speeding, what are you doing? You're asking for mercy. We all want swift justice until we are the ones receiving the penalty for doing wrong. We cry out for justice to God. But you know what? If he judged us immediately, if he dispensed justice immediately like we want, we would all be dead. Romans 3.23 makes this clear. For the wages of sin is what? Death. The wages of sin is death. So if you are guilty of sin... Even one wrong thing, you have earned yourself the penalty of death. This is the nature that we have inherited from Adam and Eve. But it's not just one thing that we're guilty of. We're guilty of a lifetime of sins. And so how much more does the wrath of God rest over us? John 3.36 talks about. This is the consequence for our part in the injustice that exists in the world today. It's death, eventually spiritual and physical death. And Solomon says we're like the animals in this sense. He says this in verse 19. The animals, they live and they die. Guess what? We're no different. But he says we're also like the animals in how we oppress one another without remorse. Now, I think in Ecclesiastes 3 here, there's an awful lot of the same language as Genesis chapter 3. In the creation and the fall account, Solomon uses phrases like sons of Adam or children of men and phrases like beasts and from the dust and the breath of life. Those are all found in the creation of the world story and the fall. God designed and made mankind distinct to anything else that he made in the animal kingdom. And so I want you to know that despite what you might have heard claimed as truth, you are not an animal and you did not come from an animal. You were made, human beings were made in the image and in the likeness of God. So Adam and Eve, they were God's first created man and woman. They were made in his likeness, in his image, and they were made to care for and rule over creation. But we know the story. In short order, they didn't rule over creation. They submitted themselves to creation, to a lower being in the form of a serpent. And because of this kind of thing, Solomon identifies that we are now, we're like beasts when it comes to justice. Outside of human beings, nature was not created with a concept of right and wrong. They were not created with a concept of fairness. Think about it this way. The weeds in my garden, they do not ask permission to choke the life out of my pepper plants. They don't. And almost every year, this sort of thing happens, unfortunately. They, they, they just do it. The weeds just choke them out because they can. They don't have any care for My poor pepper plants and my pepper plants, they don't cry out for justice. They just succumb to the lack of nutrients. Also in the animal world, we have currently at the Omas house, we have 14 chickens. 
They're not laying eggs yet. They're still growing. They're about three months old or so. When I take scraps out to give them a treat from the table, can you guess what I'm not seeing? So here's some things. I'm not seeing them line up single file to take turns to get their snack. I'm not seeing them letting the youngest or smallest chickens go first. I'm also not seeing any of them make sure that they leave enough for the next one or for the rest of the flock. Instead, what I see with my chickens is the same thing that I unfortunately see in the human world. A me-first attitude that has little regard for anyone else. My chickens would gladly jump on top one of another to get to the good stuff first. And they will willingly peck and scratch at one another to make sure that they don't get it. Isn't it sad how similar this is and how accurately this describes human nature? Even though we were made with moral sensibilities, we treat each other like animals. We treat each other inhumanely. And this is what Solomon is getting at in verses 18 through 22. We're like beasts in how we handle justice and how we treat one another. Like the beasts, humans die just the same. So if all we're living for is to be the strongest or to be the best or to eat that next delicious meal or to experience the next delight, we're just like the animals. And our lives will have just as little meaning in the end as theirs do. We die and our bodies decay to dust. And guess what? It's exactly the same for the animal kingdom. This could be a really depressing realization and situation here. In verse 21 of chapter 3, I don't think Solomon is starting to give this lecture of what happens to animals or even humans when they die. We don't know if all dogs go to heaven or if all cats go to heaven, or any animals will be in heaven. And I don't think that's the purpose of what Solomon is trying to do here. I don't think he's trying to to teach us as his readers uh, what happens to animals when they die. It says in the Christ-centered commentary, some helpful words in this, Solomon simply wants to expose the fact that we do not have certainty about what happens beyond the grave. So in that way, we're no different from animals. We don't have first-hand experience. No one definitively knows what happens on the other side of our last breath. The people who have claimed to have been dead and gone to heaven or hell and then come back to life, even if their stories would be true, they cannot relate what eternity in heaven or hell is like because they were only there for a moment in their stories. Now, side note here, this is not an encouragement in any way to read or put confidence in those stories. When it comes to the things like this, we should always base our knowledge and our opinion on the word of God as the final word, period. So since we don't definitively know by experience what happens after we die, we have to put our hope in something else. We have to put our hope in the eternal God who, as Solomon puts it in chapter 3, verse 11, he has put eternity into man's hearts. He has put eternity into our heart. So not only do we need to take this life seriously, because as as I've said before, our lives matter. All lives matter. 
every color, every age, lives matter. Because of that, we also need to take death seriously. It's going to happen. It will come in some way at some time. Remember what Solomon has been driving at in all of this. We mentioned this last week. Everything is meaningless if you don't have Jesus. But if you do have him, everything in life is full of meaning. It's wonderful. You can experience these things and have joy because they're gifts from God himself. So in chapter 3, verse 22, he says, take pleasure in the things that you do. Enjoy your life to the fullest. You don't know what tomorrow is going to bring, so live life well today. No, this is not a, this is not permission to live and embrace the YOLO mantra. Not you only live once kind of a thing. Your actions will always have consequences to them. And Christians, in fact, still represent Christ in what they do and how they live and what they speak. This is a challenge instead to let Christ so rule in our hearts that every enjoyable part of life is experienced through the grid and the lens of his grace. That's what this is an encouragement towards. Enjoy your spouse. Enjoy your kids. Enjoy your hobbies. Enjoy nature. Enjoy good music. Enjoy great food. Because God designed all of those things to both bring his children pleasure and joy and happiness, but ultimately to remind us of him as the giver of those things. They are to point us to our creator, not to be fixed on what has been created. Should we work for justice? Should we be involved in helping the oppressed and protecting the vulnerable? Without question, unequivocally, yes. The answer is yes. Being an advocate for justice, I believe, is a defining trait of a Christian. There will always be needs around us. There will always be the poor, Jesus said. And meeting the the needs in the name of Christ is part of the good works that God has planned for believers beforehand that he talks about in Ephesians chapter 2. So the encouragement here, hopefully you're hearing, is to be active in those those things. Be active in works of justice and doing good to your neighbor. But the caution here is not to let those things become the end in and of themselves. Accept, accepting or appointing conservative, conservative justices or voting in a particular party to power in the majority, that's never going to create lasting change the way that we hope and we dream that it will. We've been hoping and dreaming this for hundreds of years. But think about your favorite president and all of the things that he worked for during his tenure in office. How many of those policies were changed after he wasn't in the office anymore? It's almost like this, that old game whack-a-mole, right? When you work hard and you get one area of life or politics, uh, we think set on a good path, another problem rises up somewhere else. Or no matter how hard we work to eradicate the injustice in one arena, someone or something with wicked intentions pops up or rises up to power somewhere else. Should that cause despair? Should that cause us to throw our hands up in frustration and hopelessness? I hope that it doesn't. 
I hope that the events of this week and things that we are continuing to see don't cause us to despair, don't cause us to give up. Instead, I hope that it causes every one of us as believers to be engaged in life, to be engaged with our neighbors, to share the truth of the gospel in the political realm, to share it in the school systems, to share it in the medical field and in the business world, to share it everywhere, no matter what you do. But we can't put our ultimate hope in expecting laws to morally govern our nation back to God. It's not going to work for us that way. We know this because it it didn't even work for God's own people in Israel. Nations rise and nations fall. Political parties, they come to power and then they fall out of power. The reality of justice, it seems so close sometimes, like we're almost there, and then so far away at other times. In reality, without Jesus... The pursuit of all of those things is was meaningless. It's vanity, as Solomon puts it here. Systems of government and political parties, they can never be our ultimate hope. It can only be in Jesus. Because laws don't change the human heart. Only Jesus can change the human heart. So, yes, work for change. Be advocates of justice for the oppressed. Vote for the candidates who adhere to God's ways the closest. Support the organizations who work for good. But don't expect your involvement in those things to completely satisfy your soul. You were made to be satisfied in Jesus Christ alone. If you feel this tension like I do, if you feel it, I would encourage you to pray and talk with God. Call out to him to rescue you from the injustices, not only in your life, but also the injustices in others' lives. Cry out to him. Ask him to rescue you from placing all of your hope on anything except the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. He is faithful. God is faithful to save all of those, including you, who put their faith and their trust in him. And I'd encourage you to cry out to him today. Would you pray with me this morning as we close? God, you have absolutely called us to work for change in this world. But we're not supposed to put our confidence in our own works in that way or the works of other men. Lord, let us only boast in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Let us put our hope in him and in nothing else. When we see evil winning... When we get frustrated with the state that the world is in, let that cause us to throw ourselves on your unfailing mercies again and again. Lord, forgive us for treating each other the way that we do, like something other than human. Help us to look at our neighbor or the one that we're arguing on Facebook with or the family member we're at odds with. Help us to look at them as someone of value and as someone of worth who has been created in your image. And help us to respond appropriately. Lord, thank you for making this life worth living when we live it for you. Lord, help us to do that, not only today, but tomorrow and the next day. 
and the day after that, and to live this life like it matters, like we matter, like our neighbor matters, because we do. And we thank you for giving us that purpose and that meaning. Lord, help us to find it only in Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.